Well, this past week, I have been trying to take stock or, or pay attention um, to how I use words. And one of the things I decided to do this week was track all the times that I told a lie or I was tempted to tell a lie. And, uh, and I'm not just talking about like big lies, but anytime I felt the urge, uh, even if I didn't do it, even if, even if I just had the impulse of wanting to tell a small, teensy-weensy little white lie, I marked it down uh, in my journal. And y'all, it was a lot. Um, I encourage you this week to keep track of how often you lie or want to lie, and you might be surprised at how often that happens. And I've admitted this struggle before. I, I told, I've told y'all before I'm a people pleaser, which is just a nice way to say liar. Um, I want everyone to be happy with me. Uh, my natural instinct is to agree. It's to make you smile. My philosophy is everything can be a win for everybody. And so whatever I need to do, whatever little, small, teensy-weensy little white lie I need to tell to make sure that everyone is happy, it's going to be okay. Um, now, I know I've lost some of you here uh, because some of you are truth tellers. And the, the, you, know, you can't even make sense of the fact that I would even have to track my lies because you remember the one time you lied in 1997. And I get that. And, and I just want you to know uh, you're such a truth teller that you don't even care that your judgment of me right now is hurting my feelings. Uh, you are just appalled that I would even see lying as an option. I know what's wrong. I know it's got to stop. I mean, we're talking about one of the top 10 here. Commandment 9 says, Thou shall not bear false witness against thy neighbor. I know that our lies, even the small, teensy-weensy little white lies that don't hurt anybody or that maybe we tell to keep someone from being hurt, really have very little to do with other people and everything to do with us. My lies have to do with me wanting you to be happy with me. If someone's unhappy with me, I can become depressed. I can be devastated. It can make me uh, just completely useless at home with my wife and kids. And so better tell a lie. Um, if, in fact, if my wife Kelly is disappointed in me, I become completely incapacitated, which isn't fair because I do a lot uh, that she could be unhappy with, like... Um, I can't think of anything, but I, I'm, I know that I'm not the perfect husband. And because of my negative reaction to her unhappiness, to her negative feedback, she feels like she doesn't have permission to say when I've hurt her. So what does that mean? It means the small, teensy-weensy little white lies I tell are about me. They're not about you. They're not about saving your feelings. A lie is never others-focused. Last week, we looked at how Christian growth is always others-focused. And last summer, we studied the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he writes this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul says don't lie. He says use your words to tell the truth, the whole truth, complete truth, completely put all falsehood. And that includes teensy-weensy little white lies. Uh, and the reason he says this is because we belong to each other. 
Now, most religions or, or ethics will say, don't lie, don't lie because it's bad. Don't lie because karma will get you. Don't lie because a gentleman's only as good as his word. And, and lying is awful. Lying can have devastating consequences. And you could save yourself a lot of trouble and a lot of pain by just not lying. But Paul says, don't lie because we are members of one another. We belong to each other. It's not just don't lie because it's bad for you. Don't lie because it's bad for us. And for you truth tellers, putting away falsehood includes lies of omission. Maybe what words come out of your mouth are 100% accurate, but how often do you leave out things that would reflect poorly on you? Or how often uh, do you focus on the truth that's easy uh, for you to follow and don't focus so much on the truth that's a little bit harder personally? How often do you use your truth, speaking the truth, being a truth teller to feel superior to others? How often is the truth simply a mask you wear? Paul says, put away all falsehood completely because we belong to each other. That's what we learned last summer. And here we are this summer, and James says essentially the same thing, but he makes me feel worse the way he says it. So for those of you keeping track of my sanctification, God is still working on me, and he's making sure that I get this point. So let's look together. Let's take our medicine for today. James 3, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is God's word. And I'd like us to look at really three things that we can learn about the tongue from this passage. We learn about the horsepower of the tongue, the harming of the tongue, and the healing of the tongue. I know, bad, I know, I get it. Uh, but, but let me just say this. It may seem like what this is talking about is not lying. That it's actually talking about something much broader than lying, but I don't think so. Because I think every time we speak, every time we use words, we use our words either 
to communicate truth or a lie. And our words are the most powerful tool we have for communicating truth or lies. I know um, some people like to say, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Or a more secular way to say it is actions or works speak louder than words. But words are works. I, I picked the word horsepower originally because of the alliteration. I really just wanted to talk about the power of words, but that didn't start with an H. Um, and so I had to find a word that did, and horsepower was the word I found. But then when I looked up the definition to horsepower, this was what I found. It says it is a measurement of work done over time. All of a sudden, my stupid need to alliterate actually helped, I think, because words are horsepower. Words are works done over time. James begins his discussion on words by saying many of us should not be teachers. Why does he say that? He says that because words are horsepower. They are work done over time. A teacher, one who uses words to teach us, continues to affect us long after we leave the classroom or the sanctuary because the words work are work done over time. Words keep working on us long after they've been spoken. James, or Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on judgment day, you will have to account for every idle word. Seems pretty extreme to me. Every idle word. But Jesus knows that words are horsepower, that they are work done over time. Look again what James says in verse 9. He says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. The in God's likeness is, is the phrase that I've been focused on most of this week. And, and as I thought about what it means that we are made in God's likeness, I couldn't stop thinking about words being work done over time. Because God's action or his works that created the universe, that created you and me, were words. At the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of our story, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and then he said, let there be light. He spoke, and then things were created. Words formed our world and us, and those words spoken so long ago are continuing to form us. See, God's works are words, and we are created in God's likeness. Our natures were built on the same blueprint as God. We have creativity. We have rationality and personality. Every single one of us has eternity in us. And we also have the horse, horsepower of words. And if you need more convincing that our words are really work done over time, let me ask you this. What's the meanest thing anyone's ever said to you? My guess is you probably don't have to think long about it. My guess is every single one of us has something that comes to mind right away. Why? Because words are works done over time. Because they're horsepower. Because words keep working on us long after they've been spoken. Especially those words that have been used to harm us. So there's the horsepower of the tongue, but then there's the harming of the tongue. And the harming of the tongue really is twofold. Words that are used to harm end up harming both the one who speaks them 
and the one who they're spoken to. Because see, words that are used to harm trample on something God has put in us. When James says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in human likeness, he's saying that when we use words to harm others, anytime we use words not for truth but for lies, we are trampling not only on who they are and who God has designed them to be, but we're trampling on ourselves as well. And I think James is trying to get his readers and us to connect our harming words, not only with what it does to others, but what it's doing to us. He uses two examples. He says a horse, you put a bit in its mouth, and all of a sudden that can steer a a huge animal in the direction you want it to go. And then he says there's a large ship, and, and all kinds of winds can be you know, coming against the ship, but a small rudder can steer the course. It has the power to steer the course. Likewise, so does the tongue. So if our tongue is used to harm, in the short run, others will be hurt. But in the long run, we harm ourselves most because that tongue is setting us on a course. It's setting us on a course to lead us to the same destination as anyone else who uses their tongue to harm. Welcome to the bachelor paradise, you know. (laughs) Um, The law of God is not arbitrary. It's not created by a cosmic killjoy. The law of God is based on our design. And I know I say this a lot, but I say it a lot because I need to hear it a lot because sin can seem so enticing. Every time you or I sin, we are believing the lie that God is a withholding God, that he doesn't want what's best for us, that he indeed is a cosmic killjoy. But his law is based on who we are, who he designed us to be. So when we trample on any bit of God's law, when we use our tongues to harm, we are really harming ourselves. In verse 2, James says that if you keep your words in check, you can keep your whole body in check. If you keep your words in check, you can keep your whole body in check. What he's saying there is that the tongue has tremendous power over our character that essentially our words form who we are. Today I was having, um, uh, I met with one of my uh, former students from my youth ministry days, and he's in college now, and, uh, and he just brought up, uh, he's taking philosophy classes, and he brought up this quote uh, kind of out of nowhere from this 19th century philosopher by the name of uh, Wittenstein. Listen to this. He says, pay attention to your words Because how you use your words constructs your personality. I like lost it when he told me that because we weren't even talking about my sermon. I was like, you have no, I just wrote about this in my sermon. I love when the secular meets the sacred like that. Words form our personality. Words form who we are. And then when James in in in, in verse six says, the tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Uh, Again, those of you who love James, really? Um, Anyways, uh, James is painting a picture here of of both, in both verse two and verse six, of the tongue's tremendous power over who we are. That it can set our course. How our words form who we are. When you wake up in the morning, before you do your work, you have to put on clothes. Your thoughts are the same way. Your thoughts have to get clothed in words in order to do their work. 
So when you get an angry thought, once it's clothed in words, it does its work. It has tremendous power over who you become. It has tremendous power over your character. You're feeling fear. Once you clothe it in words, it gets to work. It has tremendous power over you. If you sit around and say, I, I'm stupid, I'm such an idiot, I don't deserve to live, you've taken thoughts and you've clothed them in words and now you have given them power to get to work on you. Now the sermon isn't heading into like a positive, power of positive uh, thinking kind of uh, statement. Um, and, and I'm and not heading in a place that says we should ignore or not give words to our negative thoughts and emotions. We should put words to them but rather we should clothe them in confession. We should clothe them in, in the words of contrition and mercy and grace. The word confession literally means to say the same thing as God. Homologio is, is the Greek word for confession. And we get the word logio, it comes from the word logos, which, which is the word in Greek for word or logic. It's the word that God also uses sometimes to describe himself. And then, of course, homo means the same. So the word confession literally means to say the same thing as God. Our negative thoughts need words clothed around them. But if it's gossip, even if it's just, I just need to work this through with somebody, if it's slander, if it's malice or hate, those words will do work on you, but they will form in you a much different character than if those words are clothed in confession. At the end of James, there's this verse that I, that I love, but I also hate. I don't know if you have verses like that, that you like love them because they're so profound and in them, you know, there's so much truth and there's, and there's so much hope. But at the same time, there are verses that really reveal to you the cost. Towards the end of James' letter, in James 5.16, he writes this, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. To me, there's nothing more beautiful than picturing being surrounded uh, by friends and experiencing healing from struggles, from addictions, from besetting sins. There's something so beautiful about that, to be fully honest and vulnerable with other people. For a people pleaser, that is what we long for. It's also the reason we lie, because we don't believe that we can be truly loved just as we are. But what is, a, what is just um, horrifying for a people pleaser is to have to admit our sin to others. But that really goes for truth tellers as well, doesn't it? So maybe you and me aren't so different. But I really hate the way this works, but it's true. We have to put words to our sins, not just to God, but to others. And I don't mean just any others, but, but to people who will, hold, who will hold our confession with care and great dignity. Giving words to our confession to others is what unleashes our healing. And this is why it drives me crazy. There are some sins which I wish could just be between God and me. Like, God, I confess that you and me, we're good. But you know what? Those are the sins that I still commit. There is something that happens when we 
put words to, to our sins, when we put words to our anger, to our hate, to our malice, to, it's when we put words to those in, in the context of community that, that James says healing happens. See, God designed us to need each other. Going back to what Paul said, we belong to each other. When it was just Adam and God, it wasn't good. You say, wait, how could that be? It was paradise. It was perfect. But God never said it was perfect. He said it was good as he created the world, as he created Adam. He said, actually, Adam was very good. But he said, one thing is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. So even before sin entered the picture, God created us to need more than just him. It's part of our good design. It's part of our design to need others. That is why our tongue is so important. That's why we shouldn't lie to one another. That's why we shouldn't use our tongues to harm. That's why elsewhere in James, he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, because you need to be a trustworthy person because your words matter. And there will come a time when your words will be needed for the healing of someone else. Healing from words requires healing words. The most untrue thing we teach our kids, um, well, besides, hey, kids, you can be anything you want to be. Um, because I lived in California three years as a cater waiter. You can't be all things you want to be. You can be something, but you can't be anything. Um, digress. Um, one of the things we tell our kids that is so untrue is that that little kid's rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Um, I try to teach my kids Sticks and stones may break your bones, but with modern medicine, like it's amazing how quickly things physically broken can be healed. And sometimes they can be better than they were before. I mean, it's just astounding the advances that we've made and how, how brilliant doctors are. But words, words can devastate you and depress you. Words can send you uh, into, into anxiety and stress. Words can make you want to isolate yourself from all others, causing you uh, to lose social skills and not care anymore if you shower or get a haircut. And, and if you want to enter back into society, you're going to have to spend all kinds of money on shampoos and conditioners and razor blades, which are ridiculously highly priced. And, and you're going to spend thousands of dollars on a therapist. Like You, you get the point, right? I bet the words that when I said, have you ever been hurt by words? What's the meanest thing anyone's ever said to you? It was something you heard as a child. For me, I was seven. I was seven years old, and words spoken to me at seven have done tremendous work on me over time. Those words are why I lie. It's why I'd rather have people happy with me, impressed by me, even if it's not real, even if I'm wearing a mask, even if it's not true, because I never want to go back to feeling how I felt when John Pilate spoke those words to me when I was seven. Proverbs 12, 18 says, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So where's the healing of the tongue? Well, it starts with being honest about our dishonesty. And this goes for those of us who love hyperbole and those of us who love accuracy. Where are you being or living or speaking dishonestly? I love the TV show House. Um, it's been off the air for a number of years, but uh, it's, a, it's a medical drama where the, the main doctor, Dr. House, 
gets the, the cases that no one else can figure out. It's like the medical mystery cases. And he always is able to solve what's wrong. And the reason is because Dr. House starts by saying everyone lies. He begins his diagnosis by trying to figure out what the lie is. See, we have to start by diagnosing our lies. We cannot experience the healing of the tongue without first being honest about our dishonesty. And as we do that, as we begin to to wrestle with where have we been dishonest? Where have we used our words to manipulate or to hide or to to tell a teensy, small, little white lie? A lot of times we can begin to discover the ways in which our tongues have been used to harm others. And when you see that, what do you do? You go apologize. It doesn't matter if it's been a long time. Even if it's something big and it's way in the past, apologize, especially for words, because words are horsepower. They have continued to do their work since the day you spoke them. The words you have spoken to harm others have continued to do their work since you spoke them. And healing from words requires healing words. But listen, when you apologize for harmful words, not only do you stop them in their work, but you can heal them. Despite what our self-help culture says to us, that we shouldn't need anyone else, that we're okay, that we shouldn't care what people think, that it's just about what we think about ourselves. If we're true to ourselves, then we'll be okay. That's, that's baloney. No, we need words. Somebody from the outside has to tell us of our value. That's the reason we harm. That's the reason we lie. Because we're desperately having, trying to find someone to tell us, to either a person or our culture or our career. We want someone to tell us that we matter. Do you know that Jesus needed words too? We're told after Jesus' baptism that the heavens opened up and the the voice of God the Father says, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. And those words would prove absolutely crucial for Jesus. Mark in his gospel says that as soon as his baptism was over, immediately he went into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted and tried. Jesus needed to know, to hear those words, to be able to face the temptation. But Jesus needed to know those words and to hear those words to make it throughout his whole ministry, a ministry where he's constantly being confronted with brokenness, seeing that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way he designed it. It's not what he had in mind when he thought it up. He needed those words to be able to live into who he was. Hebrews 5.8 tells us this about Jesus. It says, Jesus, son though he was, learned obedience from the things he suffered. Somehow, God incarnate needed words in order to live into who he was. Jesus also spoke words to us. He told his disciples uh, before his crucifixion, hey, take heart. In this world, you will have trouble, but but I have overcome the world. So just like it was crucial for Jesus, it is crucial for us. It is crucial that we hear the voice from heaven because the voice from hell won't shut up. You're not good enough. 
No one will like you if they really know you. If you just get that next promotion, then you'll feel good. Then you can relax. You can slow down a bit. Then you can actually care about your wife and your family. Hey, if she says yes, everything's gonna feel better. Really? After all that Jesus has done for you, how could you? Going back to verse two, James writes, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Jesus never stumbled. Jesus was never at fault. He was perfect, but he still needed words. And he was the word. The apostle John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then the word put on flesh, clothed himself in humanity, and dwelt among us. Jesus is the perfect word who needed words. The way we confront the voice from hell, all the harm and all the lies, is with the voice from heaven. And the apostle Peter looked at Jesus when Jesus says, hey, do you want, do you want to go? Do you want to leave? Because it's going to get rough. It's going to get really hard. And, and Peter said, where are we going to go? You, you alone have the words of life. So here's some words for us. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6.20. For one, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10.14. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103.12. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 31. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we might be called children of God, and that's who we are. 1 John 3, 1. Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 6. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, for he will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah 3:17. The Lord himself goes before you and you will be and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Deuteronomy 31:8. But he gives us more grace. James 4, 6. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in you we can find words that heal. And Father, you know uh, the things that are going on in each of our minds. You know the, the lies that we've believed. You know the ways in which we've been harmed by words. And you know the words that we've used to harm others. May we so delight in the truth of, of Jesus' forgiveness for us that we can move towards others and apologize for our words and seek reconciliation and healing from our words. Father, I ask that by your spirit, you will prompt us in whatever we need to do this week to use our words for healing instead of harming. We surrender our tongues to you. In Jesus' name, amen.